So. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, wait. This is not uncomfortable, but it's very weird. This is the thing? This is the one. Absolutely. And now it almost couldn't have happened in a better way. Where did you want to be? So it was just like, ah. Oh. <laughs> am I funny? Now if I go over here, am I still funny? Better strategy. Yeah, a way better strategy. I never thought about that. Yeah, it's a workout. I don't see it five years from now that you're not my most famous friend. You really have to commit to something. Good to have some appreciation. That's that cool. That was really cool. Yeah, it might have been cool. This is On The Cusp. Hello, I'm Ben Green and welcome to On The Cusp. Today my guest is Echo Kellum. He is an improviser on the UCB house team Winslow, an actor on the UCB sketch team New Money, and he's one of the stars of shows like Ben and Kate, Sean Saves the World, and Rick and Morty. For new listeners, you should know that there's a lot of ways to listen to On the Cusp. You can find it on Stitcher, on SoundCloud, and on iTunes. Also, if you end up liking the show, I'd really appreciate it if you'd consider rating and subscribing to us on iTunes. This episode is sponsored by Thai Pepper at 6219 Franklin Avenue in Los Angeles. Now offering complimentary cookies with every meal. And when I say that, I'm not just saying that they bring you a fortune cookie. I mean they do, but in addition to that, they will bring you a complimentary additional cookie. Thai Pepper. T-H-A-I-P-E-P-P-E-R. Thai Pepper. So I originally met Echo when he got on his Herald team Winslow, but I didn't get to really know him until I got on the same team as him, New Money, and started being his teammate. And as I was getting to know Echo, a lot of things became clear about him, that he's an incredibly nice guy, that he's super genuine, that he's effortlessly funny, um, and also that he is in unbelievably good shape. Just being around Echo makes me feel like I've got to get my life together and get in way better shape than I'm in. Just okay shape, not fantastic shape or echo kind of shape because I think that's kind of an impossibility for me, but some kind of improvement from where I am now. My problem is that I have a pretty absurd idea for how quick results should start to show when I start working out. I will go to the gym like three times a week for three weeks in a row. And then when I look in the mirror, when I see that I can't see like a lot, a lot of change, I become outraged. My, my expectation after going for that much time is always that I should start to look a little bit like a superhero. And when I look a lot more just like the way I did before, uh, that ends up being the thing that throws me out of the game. I think the thing that Echo clearly has on me is persistence. And you'll hear in his episode that persistence is just a theme through his life, where he's able to, in a way that a lot of people can't, try a thing out and stick to the thing and keep going until things work out for him. And that's how Echo does everything in his life, not just going to the gym. He's done the same thing with his career. It feels symbolic that most of the time I've known Echo, he's lived in this really small apartment uh, on the same street that I live on. And when we did this interview, he's just moved into a really awesome new house um, that just goes to show how much he's made for himself. Um, I apologize that sound in the interview is sometimes not that great because uh, he was actually moving into the house uh, as 
we uh, did the interview. So you'll hear like moving in sounds sometimes happening in the background. Uh, but I kind of like the authenticity that gives to the interview where you can actually hear Echo's life literally changing around us while the interview is taking place. So now I submit for you right from Echo's very, very new house, uh, my interview with Echo Kellum. question if a genie came down and said you could go into a room for 10 years that would just be bonus time but you're going to be all by yourself for those 10 years mm -hmm. you'll come out and it's like still it's february 3rd 2015 but you've just had it's 10 a years hyperbolic it's a hyperbolic chamber <laughs> where time continues to go on from the outside and stay still and I have to pick a room that I can go into? Well, it's just that you're going to be, it's whether you want to go in this room or not, because you're going to be completely isolated. Do it. Um, but you'll like get to, if you want to like learn any kind of skill, you can learn everything in those 10 years. Man, you know, I feel like I'm such a social being that I would be sad yeah. to be alone for 10 years, just because I love people so much. And like, if I think of all the moments in life where I was, you know, duress or, you know, feeling like I wasn't going to make it, it was the people around me, my friends, the people who cared about me that kind of helped me pull through. I mean, I would love to, you know, get into a hyperbolic chamber and become like a rock star, and, you know, <laughs> rock it out. But my question is, do you still, are you staying the same youth that yeah, you are? Exactly None of that changes. You're the same age. You just get to leave for 10 years, become super awesome, and then it's like, I leave, I come back, and it's like, oh yeah, dude, I'm just amazing right. at everything. Yeah, the only downside is you haven't seen a human being. God. And you have to think about how crazy have you gone, or could you keep your sense? Could you still, could you still play with people over Xbox Live? If, if, <laughs> no? no? No. Damn. You can okay. play video games. But by yourself. Any, anything player. you want in the room, Single you can player. ask for, and it like just appears. What about? But they can't be humans. See, so you have to. There's no sex, no nothing. You're no. Just, oh my god. You know, I'd rather put that time in real life and dedicate a, a good chunk of my time to a master the things I really want to master while still having social connections and people I love. You know, I, I get the benefit of like having an additional ten year advantage on life for other people because you get wisdom and all that stuff like that. So that's tempting, you know, that's very tempting, but... But you think you're going to stay just in the normal world? Yeah, because you know what? Normal life is pretty great, too. You yeah. know what I'm saying? Like, I, I've always been the type of person, like, I don't have to have it all. You know what I'm saying? Uh -huh. I, it takes very little to please me. Like, this is coming from a person, I stay in the studio apartment with my best friend and writing <laughs> partner for four years. No yeah. matter what, through successes, failures, everything. Like, I was like, whatever. <laughs> I'm a very chill person. I, I was born in the projects in Chicago. You mm -hmm. know what I'm saying? Nine people in a two-bedroom apartment, roaches everywhere, gang violence outside. Like, I'm cool. I'm chill. You know what I'm saying? And even with that said, you know, like, my childhood was amazing. You know, like, it was so much fun. And 
but that brings me back down back to around to that my friends and my circle or people I hung out with like they're the same people since I've been nine years old are still my closest friends in life wow so there's that that's there's like four <laughs> four people yeah I've lost a lot of people from those, like, first years. Yeah, you don't um, get to keep And we talk every day. Like, we all don't live in the same places. Like, Charles lives in Chicago. Jared and Reese live in Texas. Jinx lives in Las Vegas. But, like, we still game all the time with each other. And Jinx just came out here for, like, the Bulls and Blackhawks game. And, like, we're on this, like, app called Boxer where we just talk trash. It's just like... <laughs> Just like nothing changed, you know, except we're all growing up and doing stuff like two of them in law enforcement. One uh, works at the airport. The other is like a um, supervisor for like a, a, a big um, like a customer service company or something like that. So it's like one of them is also just a do nothing dude. Just we're in a time we're smoking <laughs> joints all the time. But, you know, it's like still like pretty cool that we all are just just doing it, like still having fun, being youthful and uh, still connecting with each other and getting through life, you know? Do they think it's crazy that you're, like, really going for this thing? Um, you know, yes and no, I feel like. Because I've, I've always been a person, like, I'm, I've known I wanted to be an actor since I was probably seven. You know, probably even earlier than that, because my brothers and sisters were part of this thing on the soft side called the Soft Shore Culture Center, which actually Craig Robinson's mom helped run because she was a piano teacher where they just, like, had kids in the inner city coming and doing creative arts and stuff like that and I would see them like doing that stuff and I'm like I want to do it you know and start doing church plays and then I think when A Living Color came out was when I really got like the bug and just started emulating Jim Carrey nonstop and just being like oh my god I want to do that so it's just been something I've known you know that I've wanted to do my entire life so I feel like that definitely helps you know yeah. what, what do you feel like you need to be happy like what are the base things Base things, uh, to be able to eat whatever I want. <laughs> but I don't mean that as a slob. Like, you know, I mean, like, if I want a good steak, I can go get a good steak. Yeah. You know, like, if I want to go have a tuna swat salad, that's no problem. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? But, like, I, I, I am a healthy person. Like, I definitely choose to eat healthy. And the fantastic tuna swat salad. Yeah. Oh, I want one of the best tuna swat salad in the country, dare I say. <laughs> Right now, How do you get and that? I get one on one coffee shop is not the best <laughs> coffee shop in the country, but their tuna swat salad is off the easy. You don't believe me? Go try it. You listen to this podcast, get out of your seat right now. Pause the podcast, go to Dick's Head on and, and Franklin because I think that's the street. And have that tuna swat salad. How, yourself how, how many lemon uh, dressings should you have with it? I think two lemon dressings is pretty good. But I would say I only use half of the second dressing. I feel like two, maybe too yes. much. One and a half is a pretty good blend. Perfect. Like no. um, okay, so steak, tuna swat salad. Mm -hmm. You can eat whatever you want. Eat, okay, yeah, so eat whatever I want. Um, being able to have my friends, mm -hmm. you know, in my circle. Uh, doing something creative and fun so for me like improv or something like that where i just get to be on stage and play is something um and just having a safe place to live you know it doesn't have to be the biggest mansion or you know the smallest mansion you know um it doesn't even have to be a mansion it just has to be a, a safe place to to live where i don't have to worry about gang violence and stuff like that because yeah. that's what i really dealt with as a kid not well, I can't say not personally because I have like survived drive-by shootings and stuff like that. 
and had numerous guns put to my face, but it didn't like define my youth, but it's something that I'm aware of. It was something I was like, oh, this is just how it is. Like there's gang violence and people shoot up your hood and a bullet comes through your window sometimes. And you know, you see a guy get shot in the back of the AK-47 down the hall sometimes. You know, like this is just my life. And, yeah. You know, um, all my brothers like had to deal with this even more so than me. Like I was the kind of the youngest, luckiest brother because we moved out of projects when I was four, as opposed to having to stay there when I was eight and just see all the crap that's happening there. Um, but that's why safety is so important for me. You know, like safety where I live is because of just having experienced that type of stuff. Um, but that's just like simple stuff like that. That is easily accessible. You know, in most neighborhoods, and I learned that even in Chicago once I moved up north, it's like oh. This is way safe. Not not meaning that crimes don't happen and, you know, people still don't get hurt and stuff like that, but it's just way, way, way less, you know. You're making your odds way better. Yeah, the odds are much, much better, <laughs> you know, so. so being in Hollywood doesn't help, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, because there's a lot of crazies out there. Mm -hmm. But people aren't putting guns up to your head. No, thankfully not anymore. It's been years <laughs> since then. So you were born in Chicago? Yeah, Chicago, Illinois. Mm -hmm. And in projects? I lived on 22nd and State in what they would call the Harold Ickes Housing Project. Um, and Harold Ickey was a famous politician, Democratic politician, and they all named a whole bunch of these buildings where they put all the black people at after these politicians. It was it was pretty fucked up because, you know, Chicago was very segregated and the way it was built was to, like, exclude and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, so you just you throw all the poorest people in a building and then you have a housing project, you know, where crime is dramatically increased, drug use is dramatically increased, um, and the the, the um, quality of living is like decreased dramatically there too. Um, so it's just a very tough situation to come from or get out of, but that's what they built, you know? Um, so that's where I was born and lived for four years until we moved out a little bit further south and we lived in a neighborhood that was still, you know, had gang violence, but it, it was a little bit better. And then we moved even further south to this real community where I felt very free as a kid, even though there was violence and I would never let my kid go out, you know, in that type of area. But this is the place where my friends came to play, where we went to the, our grade school, Wimberley Green was like a half block from my house. So all my friends would always come to my house. We'd play Sega Genesis, Super Nintendo afterwards. Then we'd go experience the neighborhood, Ding Dong Ditch, you know, uh, basketball championships in the alley, you know what I'm saying? Just like a lot of fun, fun, fun times. But that doesn't mean that sometimes people didn't get shot in the neighborhood or older guys that we knew from the neighborhood didn't get shot. You know, they were like, we lived in a neighborhood where there were Blackstones, which is a gang, right? So all the older guys knew all the kids in the neighborhood but they were all gang members or Blackstones or whatever, but they it was their turf, so it was usually <clears throat> pretty decent, but every once in a while, somebody from a different turf would come over and shoot somebody because somebody shot somebody because somebody shot somebody, you know? So, like, my friend Lanell Reese, his cousin was killed when we were, like, 10, in, like, in the neighborhood. And know? was that so, pretty scarring to have that happen? For sure, yeah. It was, uh, it was pretty traumatic because we all knew Sean, and... You know, it's like, wow, you know, but like I said, it was something that I think we all were definitely aware could happen to anybody, you know, but that didn't control us or, you know, dictate our lives. It was just a part of it, you know, it was just like, oh, yeah, this happens sometimes. You just have, we have to be careful and 
make sure that we weren't into trouble. And we, we definitely, the core group of my friends were all nerds. So we were like picked on at school sometimes, but we were also kind of like cool because we had each other. And so we had like our own clique of like nerdy dudes who read comic books and played video games and like love like, you know, um, car games and stuff like that. And then like you had the other guys at school who were kind of like bullies, but we, we would fight back because like all, all, all of our older brothers were like, my older brothers were gang members and stuff like that. So they always were like, you're not going to be a punk and you know, any of that stuff, you know. So like I would fight back against bullies and sometimes I had to fight a bully three times, but like I'm like, I'm not gonna be a punk, you know, my friends would help sometimes and we just always had each other's back, you know. Um, so that kind of gave us this weird <coughs> leeway as kids where we could still be nerds but not picked on as much, even though we did definitely get picked on. What would these fights look like? Like throwing punches? Or? Yeah, like oh yeah. Full on punch thrown. I mean like there was one instance where this guy, Mike B, I won't say his name, Michael Brown, fuck him. He's, he fucking <laughs> bit our friend's ear off. No way. Literally in a fight. And, and I mean, he wasn't like our friend, friend, but he was like, he was going through all these grades with us for like six years, you know? Uh, and we weren't like tight, he wasn't in our circle, but he fought him and then bit his ear. And then he fought somebody else like a year or two later and tried to bite their ear off. The dude's like chunk of his ear is missing to this day because this fucking kid. I don't want to fight yeah, that guy. I know. Dude, it, <laughs> it's crazy. It's a crazy other. I couldn't imagine, you know, uh, a child having to go through that now and stuff like that, or my children having to deal with that. It would just be, like, the worst, you know what I'm saying? But it was, it was, it was, there were hurdles. But overall, it was a fun sprint, you know what I'm saying? Youth was great, you know, because we had each other. And yeah. we had fun. And, you know, us being nerds and stuff like the stuff we were into like kept us out of trouble and kept us away from gangs and stuff like that. So you said you like Sega Genesis. What Super were the Nintendo. other nerdy things? Oh man, um, definitely like any type of anime. We're like hardcore anime people. Like we would get all the Dragon Ball Z stuff early. We order it from overseas and get it. Just we had to get it on tape and stuff like that, obviously. And we'd be into all that stuff. Akira, obviously, because my uncles and and them we. <laughs> We always sneak and watch, not even sneak, cause they were just cool, like whatever kids, whatever, watch it. You know, we watched like Vampire Hunter D and like Akira and like all <clears throat> dope Ninja Scrolls and like all those dope old earlier animes. And then we were all definitely into comic books, X-Men and, you know, uh, Onslaught and all that stuff like that, even though it was a little later, but we were in the comic books hardcore. Any manga? Was that oh, yeah, yeah, like Ninja Scroll and all okay, that. Yeah, definitely listen to that is yeah, that anime, is. yeah. That, that's what I, I, it's all animation, yeah, 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 mm-hmm. in general. But yeah, definitely manga, their um, their movies and stuff like that. Hardcore, um, Yu Gi Oh! <laughs> uh, Pokemon, <laughs> all that stuff. Um, so yeah, we, you know, there's an interesting article I read a couple years ago. And they mentioned me vaguely in it, which I was like, holy crap. But it was called, like, The Revenge of the Black Nerd. Yeah. And it was a really good read. And I was like, man, yeah. It's like the fact that that's somehow become popularized because of people like Kanye and these just nerdy individuals who are just being themselves and not not trying to conform to a stereotype of, like, well, I'm black, I have to present myself as this or wear baggy pants or stuff like that, you know. But it's interesting to be like, I dealt with this all as a kid and then to be 
kind of hinted at in the article, you know what I'm saying, with somebody yeah, really that's crazy. coalescing amongst the argument for the black nerd which, and, and the popularity of its rise. It was very interesting and like cool. Did you feel at all embarrassed about it growing up, like to have that nerd Sure, story? yeah, sure. And like, there was even frictions within my family, uh, like with brothers and stuff like that, where we had to deal with that, like with them thinking that I was gay just because I wasn't, yo man, what up? You know, like because I was like, nah man, I'm just chilling, dude. You know? <laughs> They like gay or acting white, like you know what I'm saying. Like those things definitely got thrown away. Like in, even in high school, they nicknamed me Fabio because I was just the pretty boy or whatever. And I'm like, what? This is great. Yeah. This is I'm not, you know, because I guess my diction wasn't, you know, uh, broken or <laughs> I didn't use broken English or whatever. People were that just like, oh, he's articulate, so he's obviously gay or trying to be white <laughs> or whatever, you know. Um, but yeah, I have to deal with it inside and outside. Like I have bro- my brothers with like I'm part white, like my mm-hmm. um, grandmother's white, and my brothers would tell me to tell people to say that I'm Latin. So for years, I would say I'm Dominican. I'm part Dominican, as opposed to <laughs> saying I was part because white. A, that's what a quarter white ends yeah. up equaling. Yeah, yeah, you know. But it it was also the thing. Which, of, was your grandmother Latin? Or, no, no, so there's, no, my, there's, there's no, no Latin there's connection not. in any way. My, but my brother's like, man, don't be talking about your white side, dude. You know, because like I always had like really curly hair, you know, like dark, you know. But like my dad was like, you see, you see his features, like you know, he's a darker, you know, half black, half white dude. But you know, I always had like those little just curly like little features and stuff like that. And so people were like, what are you? Are you mixed or something? And I'm like, oh yeah, I'm part white. And they're like, shut up, this <laughs> ain't Dominican. And but I took that and ran with it until I was like probably like twenty. Five or twenty seven. I was like, I gotta stop saying I'm part Dominican. What is wrong with me? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, Just doing what your brother told you. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and I know I'm talking a lot of shit about some of our brothers, but they really have my back. And all the big pivotal moments in my life were accounted. Whether it was getting bullied on, like I, I almost had a halo because of my brothers around me in school. Like, and gang members didn't mess with me because my brothers were like these. I mean, they they were from the projects. Like my brother, one of my brothers, um, who passed away unfortunately, he went back and like kept going back to the project and like spent his rest of his life going back down there. And it's with a pretty notorious gang group called the Gangster Disciples. But it was like one of the most dangerous like hotbeds of crime that you do not want to be at at all. But like yeah, that was his that was his playground, his stomping ground. And unfortunately, he got killed down there. You know being down there and stuff like that too because of gang stuff yeah he what's interesting my brother was on the cusp uh as we say he was a rapper um and just signed a half million dollar deal with sony with his rap partner no way lep if you look him up like they stayed they still making music lep but he when he died the group just really changed it was him and count and they were like opening up for the locks and rough riders and like i mean it, on the cusp of like blowing up. He was really, really talented, really awesome. And after a concert, he went to a party in the projects and somebody shot him in the back of the head, you know? And like, even at the funeral, like Sony execs came and also like that, I mean, it was like, you know, like, damn, you know? That's terrible. Yeah, you know, but it's just the life, you live that life, you know, it's just, it's a reality. And it's something that a lot of young black men, unfortunately, you know, have to, deal with and have scars and war wounds for so how do you feel like his death affected you 
<sighs> it hit me pretty hard. Uh, I was very close to him. It was, I think, the first time. My, my dad died when I was like nine, you know. But it was the first time being an adult and really knowing the, you know, finiteness of that happening. It was the first big, like, death that I really experienced, you know. Um, so it was really tough for a while. I actually turned to alcohol and, like, spiraled for, like, a, a month or two. Um, but, you know, time heals all wounds, man. And I still hold them true to my heart, but it also made me want to be more motivated. And I felt like, you know, I have to do something to make our family name mean something or like I want to carry on whatever his legacy was and like I was still active and stuff like that and he just happened to be rapping so we were both still like the two brothers who like were just going for it you know um and there's a feeling that your brother was going to be big yeah they really I mean he was he was an amazing rapper and I mean he's, he's just a talented dude in general like he's one of the people when I was a kid that I looked up to who was like doing acting stuff and he was an amazing dancer actor rapper I mean but he did he really was addicted to the street life though you know like he really was he lived that life man um and that's why I say I feel thankful in some ways that I didn't have to go through that struggle in the sense that I got to get out of the um hood a little earlier because he had to live there for eight years you know what I'm saying in the projects like and I'm sure that and, and like my mom like you know single mom five kids just trying to figure it out extremely poor it was tough you know like it, it's gotta be tough on anybody um but I feel like she was kind of figuring it out by the time I was growing up a little bit even though it was still tumultuous but you know I think she was a little easier on me because she was so hard on my brothers and they spiraled out and she was like maybe I should try something different and then I was like oh whatever you know like she she was upset when my brother to get his ears pierced because the ears piercing did like sim symbolize game. Like you got right your GD, left your blackstone. And she took me to get my ears pierced because she was like, oh, he's a nerd. You know, like it, I'm not on that, you know, but I want to be cool. Like I want my ears pierced. Um, but his, 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 um, his death definitely for like took me down, but it made me stronger in the sense that you realize the big stuff in life. And maybe this is why I can take a lot of punches in this career and just keep coming back with a smile on my face and like it's all good. Is because there's no pain that you feel like that. You may lose your house, you may have an accident in your car, you may not get the job, you may get fired from the job, you may break up with your girlfriend, but you still got tomorrow. Do you ever feel when you're hearing like other people complaining about small stuff they've got going on, like it's hard not to say something? It's not, not hard not to say anything. I could, I definitely, because small stuff does matter, you know what I'm saying? But it's all about your perspective. Um, small stuff can build up to big stuff, you know? But when you don't have the perspective of what really real big stuff is, you know, so it, it just, I, I dare not um, try to preach to anyone if they haven't experienced. I'm thankful for them if they haven't experienced yeah. the hurt and pain or the scars that that can leave on your life, you know? Um, but it is sometimes a little bit funny, like, oh man, you're tripping over that deal. That's crazy. <laughs> like, it's not a big deal. Like, I do come from that, like, and my girlfriend and I get into a lot of arguments with that being like, 
chill out, relax. Like, why are you tripping over this? Like, yeah. whatever. <laughs> it's just the client, you know, whatever, you know. So it definitely made me real strong in the sense that I can take a punch, a big old punch. I've taken some huge punches last year, especially. And just been able to like, you know what? All good, though. Life is still here. Everything good, you know. It's having that perspective. It's like when you realize how big the infinite, infinite, how big and infinite the universe is, and then you see this little small rock, and you're like, well, who really care? Like we're so insignificant in the main scheme, in the main scheme of the universe. So it's like that's kind of how my problems have become. It's like big stuff, universe, life, death, you know, whatnot, and all this other little minuscule my my car don't slay you know it's like oh, who cares you know that's a great perspective to have yeah uh what were your parents like <sighs> my father man he was a cool dude man he was a cool dude he was an artist uh airplane pilot a pimp a um ladies man a philanthropist he was a lot of things you know um and he lived a pretty incredible life. Uh, unfortunately died, you know, in his mid to late 50s, but he's like one of the first black air, he was the first black air policeman in London. Like no way. He was in the air, I mean the dude. Was he born in England? Or? No, no, he married one, his wife was from England, he married her out there, had three kids with her, lived that life, owned a plane shop, art gallery, Decided, fuck that, you know, broke up, left his wife, started pimping, had a daughter from one of his prostitutes, said, fuck this, what I'm doing, came back to Chicago from LA, met my mom, had me as a kid, and just was just way more chill over when he got older, you know, so he was just like relaxed and super chill, but had lived, you know, a pretty long, a pretty um, enduring and crazy life. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> But he was very creative too, very um, brilliant in some ways. Um, really, really smart dude. Um, do you have any of his art? I do. I have. I have one painting that he painted of me as a kid. Yeah, it was. It's very good. Very nice. <clears throat> but yeah, um, he passed away when I was like eight or nine, um, and so unfortunately, not to get to get my big big life lessons you know like that from him but i did have a lot of men in my life and not because my mom was a skank or anything she was very religious but like my sister's dad was there for me a lot in life and my cousin who was actually old enough to be my uncle was like there for me as a father figure too and he had two kids around my age um so i had some help you know in helping trying to figure out, you know, how to be a man. My dad was born in 1933, so he was an older dude. Mm -hmm. um, my mom was younger, so that's why my, my cousin was like kind of my uncle, you know. Um, so I was very lucky and fortunate, uh, saying both of those, lucky and fortunate, to have, you know, strong male figures in my life. And even though my brothers, you know, sold drugs and stuff like that, they were, they always wanted to keep me away from it and keep me excluded from that type of stuff. They always wanted to make sure that I was on a straight and narrow and, you know, not not trying to preach to me, but they're like, yeah, man, get you act, man. Yeah, go, I guess, man. You know, something like that. Yeah. You know, so that was pretty cool. And you had a good relationship with your mom? Yeah, I mean, you know, it was up and down, you know, but she, she was doing the best she could. But our relationship's great now, for sure, now that I live in her house. But, you know, she she always supported me and always supported my dreams when she knew I wanted to be an actor she was like let's do it baby how can I help like she took me out 
got me involved my first like acting work when I was 13 I was like professionally acting doing plays in front of thousands of people you so know, what was that? That was called, there was this thing called KRP2, or Kids Are People Too. And it was like this open casting call that my mom saw. She's like, oh, I'm going to take my baby there. He wants to act when I was 12. And I went and auditioned for this lady named Cassandra Parker. And I actually, I got in the, the troupe or whatever. And so she has this workshop where you act and stuff like that. And then she's like, you know, we're going to put on a big play and all stuff like that. So she actually went out, got all these vendors, started this company, and like... <clears throat> would literally get us in amazing theater places, Field Museum, Medina Temple, wherever, performing in front of thousands of kids, bust all over from all schools, all over. Like I had to get work permits and like sit out like part of freshman year to perform and stuff like that. And it was like nuts that I was getting to like do this honest like live stage, you know, equity work yeah. as a 13, 14, 15, 16 year old. You know what I'm saying? Um, and it was great because like I was one of the main repertoires actors and so like the first play we did um, called Christmas and it was all original plays by Cassandra Parker this first play we did like I played Scrooge and like the best friend of one of the kids you know what I'm saying so it was like this such an amazing feeling to be like I'm a working actor yeah and be doing it and then doing these plays they were all for like um holidays and stuff like that so we do maybe three or four plays a year but we would do like uh 30 shows in like 25 days or something like that you know so we'd be going 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 and they have kids with adults and stuff like that and we'd be the child actors doing it it was insane it was insane did you ever have a nervous feeling about being in front of such a big crowd there's only one time I, no i was not nervous because like i was just like oh, i love doing this um but there was only one time that it's, it's so funny because it still affects me to this day one time and, and every actor deals with this but one time where i forgot my line on stage and i'm just blank <laughs> and then i remember the guy being like but you're not you don't mean Christmas, do you? And I was like, yeah, that's it. Yeah, yeah, Christmas. Oh. But that moment always just like <laughs> stayed with me like, God, I can't ever, if I ever blank on stage, oh my God, so even like in my shows and stuff like that, I'm like, oh, come on, Eve, don't really do that. Exciting. Don't do that thing you did when you were 14. <laughs> you know, like it's crazy. But and then I talked to a lot of actors who all, they're like, we feel that way too. Like, yeah, we don't want, you know, that it happens to people though sometimes. It happens. It's only happened to me one other time. And it was during a uh, during a um, during a not too shabby my, um, new money performance, and I totally spaced out on my line, and I was like, "Oh my god!" How long did it last? Uh, it was probably ten seconds yeah. to find it, fifteen seconds to just find the wheels yeah. again and keep going. Um, but at least it, that's a fine place. It's the <laughs> scariest thing in the world. Yeah. It's like it terrifies me so much. Like even doing Sean Saves the World, like from I had no problem. I was like, "Oh, this is easy. Come on, let's do it." You know, let's have fun. We're just playing. But the best thing about that is like you mess up, it gets a laugh. <laughs> you messed up, oh that's funny, let's do it again, yeah. Yeah. Not in live theater. Right. You don't get to mess up and get a laugh and get to do it again. So there's just an awkward <laughs> feeling in the theater. Yeah. yeah, there is. Yeah. So you kept acting through high school? Kept acting through high school. Like once KRP KRP2 kind of folded, like by the time we became like a junior in high school. So I did that from like eighth grade to junior year. And then junior year, I got into acting drama club, drama club at school. Like I was playing like football and basketball and stuff like that. And I was like, forget that. I want to act. Just drama. Were you club. pretty good? I was pretty good at basketball. No, I was pretty good at football too. I was a wide receiver, free safety. Um, 
I mean, I would say about seven of ten of all the people that are decent, you know, but like, and I can ball, I can ball my ass off, you know, I can dunk most like that, but I can play college ball. Uh-huh. So, you know, I'm not Division One. I, I don't know Division Two for sure. I can play Division Two basketball, and I'm, my joints are creaking now and stuff like that. <laughs> but I was that good. Like I played enough where I got I could be that level. Cool. Um, but I quit all that to do drama club because I was just like, man, I want to focus on acting. Like I love it, I love it, I love it. And so I kept acting there, and then I kind of took a break because like life just kind of started happening, like. A, did some college, um, did some uh, community college in Chicago and then Columbia, and then I had a kid <laughs> and I had no money. So I was like, oh my God, I have to get a job. So I started working at Blockbuster Video and <laughs> making $7.50 an hour, I took care of my family, a uh, girl and my son, you know, and it was really difficult. So, but it was just something I had to just focus on that. And throughout time, like, this is how I feel like life is just so great because it's like I had nothing, right? You know, so I, I'm working at Blockbuster Video and then there's this bar down the street called the Glow Pub. And I'm like, man, I wish I could get a job there because our bartenders make bank, you know? And so, like, I go over there to try to apply for a job before I even get a job at Blockbuster. Like, no, I'm not hiring. So I work at Blockbuster, working there for a year. The owner from the bar comes into Blockbuster. He comes in, you know, frequently to rent movies and stuff like that. And I, I, I asked him about a job, he remember me. Uh, no, he didn't come in. Actually, he was walking down the street. I was walking down the street carrying groceries. And I was like, hey, Stuart, what's up? He's like, hey, you still looking for that job? I'm like, yeah. He's like, come in next week. Just randomly, you know what I'm saying? Oh, and so then awesome. I got this job at this bar where I started making bank and like able to afford a better place and stuff like that. And then through that bar, I met a good friend of mine. And then like, he kind of got me back into acting. And then like, I just started like acting. He like took me up, got me like a national spot on TV. Just, he's like, dude, you want to come downtown maybe in a commercial? I'm like, uh, sure. I did one of those man on the street things where I just tasted a pretzel half cracker. And then all they kept in the commercial was me saying, wow, cut the next, the next person. And, and that was your first thing that was on TV? That was my first thing. I made like $60,000 no off it. Way. It was up, because they ran it for two years. So it helped me save up money to move to LA, to do all that stuff, to take care of my family. And it's like crazy how it all like propelled like that. Can you put yourself in like the most, uh, like in one of the more desperate moments while you were still like working at Blockbuster and yeah. how that felt? It didn't feel desperate to me because I felt like I had my basic needs covered. It was, it was in a little sense like, oh, money, gotta have money. But, like, I got to have those basic things that I needed still. And I got to have a beautiful kid and roof over his head, you know what I'm saying? And a, a, a woman who was very supportive at the time. And, you know, we got to eat stuff that we liked. And we got to watch whatever movies we wanted to. And, you know, we were young and just trying to figure it out. And I was just happy that I could put a roof over the kid's head and content with that, you know, whether it was my dream house or you know a studio apartment i was just happy that i could do something to protect my baby yeah <laughs> um they're definitely even though i said i wasn't you know there were like low, low moments like that there were definitely times of like stress of being like oh man how we pay rent this month and like oh, hope something comes through or hey man can i brawl you know some money mom or you know whatever it was you know 
it was stress there, but overall, I was just happy I was doing what I needed to do. And what were you feeling like the rest of your life was going to look like since acting had like sort of fallen by the wayside yeah. for the bit? I mean, it, it was, I always knew I was going to come back to acting. I always knew that. I just knew that I had to do what I had to do in the time being just to be a father, first and foremost. Because um, like even initially when my kid was born, like his mom wasn't there because it was very, just a very... Her parents were just from a different place. They were from India, very strict, you know, they just had a very specific way they did things. So, like, I had to take care of them by myself, essentially, for the first, like, couple months, even though she was there, supportive, but she just had to deal with all this family stuff, you know, this craziness. So, it was just, like, a, a need. Like, I'm like, I gotta do this. Like, this is my baby, you know? I, I gotta be there and do whatever I do. But I knew I was gonna come back to acting. I knew it was my dream, it was my heart, it was my everything, and it always been. I just knew I had to take care of some grown-up stuff first. And I knew that acting wasn't going to pay the bills the way I wanted to at that time, too. But it was, you know, it was just a, a build-up, you know, how it always is. You know, you, you get a job, you work there a little bit, you start getting promoted. Like, I, I went from working at Blockbuster to working town, down at Geek Squad, making triple what I was making at Blockbuster and still bartending. And, you know, so the money, I'm not really worried about. What were you about. doing at Geek Squad? I was a computer technician oh, for like three years, you know, um, but I started off at Best Buy as just like uh, a guy in the gaming department, the blue shirt. And I was like, I want to become a Geek Squad member, like teach me how to figure out computers and stuff. And they were, they just like my personality. I was like, yeah, you can be the personality side of Geek Squad and then we'll teach you how to do all this other stuff. And so they thought like I could be a good branch between the customers and the actual technician and whatnot. And they were like, we're still going to, and then we'll teach you how to be a technician too. So then you can do both. But I was really good with customers. I always been, always had great customer service. Oh, let me backtrack a little bit, real quick. When I was working at Blockbuster, a woman, you know, I'm just a nice guy. You know, this is I'm just not some jerk. You know, I also one thing we haven't talked about. I grew up very religious, going to church and stuff every day, and I mean five, six times a week, and going to Kingdom Hall too. So it was like I grew up very religious. So I was just uh, a guy who kind of just had morals and was just nice to people. Um, <laughs> so. I was working at Blockbuster before Geek Squad, and this woman, Catherine Glenn, came in, and she's like, do you act? <laughs> and I was just like, well, yeah, you know, I have, you know, it's something I would like to get back to one day, but you know, whatever. She's like, you know what, you, you got a great personality, you got great, she's like, here, here's my card, I'm an actor, if you need help or anything, let me know, and not. So she, like, helped me get, like, my resume together, and all stuff like this, and, like, really, like, She's like, you gotta go with some agencies and stuff like that. And I was like, okay, I, I kind of will, I guess, you know, but then I kind of just was like, whatever, we'll figure it out later. Um, so I get the, this happened in Blockbuster, and I was like, oh, that's really sweet of her. Nice. Anyway, Blockbuster was done. Geek Squad. They like helped me become that customer service guy that I become, and then like I learned all about computers and like how to build computers and take them down, and you know what RAM and motherboards are, and like you know all that shit like that. You know, so I was like a, definitely a hardware guy, like where I like building. Um, and it was great because I got paid triple what I got paid at Blockbuster and it really helped me afford like a place for us in a really good neighborhood because location is everything to me, as I stated earlier. Um, and so we just kind of like moving on up to the east side, you know, when that happened and I'm still working at the bar and I'm working at Geek Squad during the day, seven to three and then going to the bar Thursday and Friday nights to, you know, just make extra income and whatnot. And then this woman at the bar who just come in was a... Uh, agent, you know, at a commercial spot. She's like, you gotta come down on the court, come down here. And so I was like, okay, fine, I'll do it. 
wound up going in there, and then that's when I just started doing commercial work in Chicago. And then I noticed that I would always get called in to like improv commercials, where it was like improv experience, just because I was just kind of like, I'd just go for whatever my brain went for, you know, like I wasn't just hindered or like felt like I had to, you know, do something specific. I was just very free-flowing actor, you yeah. know what I'm saying? Like, because I, I never had too much like intensive like Stoyovsky, you know, Mamet, you know, type of stuff like that. It's just like whatever, it's very free-flowing for me always, like just more like rawness, just like. You knew how to be natural. Right, yeah, because I didn't get fucked up in a lot of ways, like this is how you have to act, this is how you act, you know, so like that. Um, but I started doing commercial work out there, little stuff, you know, like I, I was like an elf for the lottery during the Miracle Mile Day Parade, making like a hundred bucks to be an elf. But I'm like, hey guys, thanks for fucking the lottery! Have fun! <laughs> like I committed to like this character. I played this character the entire time. People uh-huh. thought it was so silly. It was just, but it was like, I was like, I love this. Like, yeah. this is so much fun. I don't care. So, like, that's just kind of, like, I guess, another life thing for me. is like, I can make a million dollars a year. I can make $75,000 a year. I don't, it doesn't matter. Because as long as I can support my family, you know, live in my house, you know, do what I got to do, then I'm happy. You know what I'm saying? It doesn't have to, I don't have to have the biggest mansion or the littlest mansion or any mansion at all. Right? You know? Yeah. Because that stuff doesn't matter. But... What did matter was the fact that I get to get out there a little bit like that. And then my friend Corey's the one who looked me up with the commercial. And that just really propelled me to get out here to L.A., which was definitely tough because, like, my son didn't come with me. Because it's like, I, you know, it was just me just taking a shot in the dark to see if I can make my dreams come true. And thankfully, with technology and stuff like that, you know, we get the FaceTime every day. And now he comes out every summer and stuff like that. But, you know, his, his, his mother and I parted ways and, you know, split up and whatnot and just had to deal with that but you know I just knew I had to follow my dreams and try to make it happen you know yeah. um, and that's why I moved out to LA and then that's where improv where I found improv because I, I you know I, go, I went in for all the improv auditions in Chicago but I never studied it never even seen a show you know but for some reason my crazy brain just happened to connect with it and so when I moved to LA I was like I know no one I'm standing on a friend's couch who's getting married to some guy but that's fine you know uh, I'm going to start taking improv classes. So I knew IO was in Chicago, so I started taking IO out here with that whole program, then with the UCB's whole program, and then with the Groundlings, which haven't finished that yet because it takes five years. <laughs> um, <laughs> but it's definitely something like that Dave Rosowski moment where just like, I want to do this for the rest of my life. Like, I have to do improv forever, you know, type of thing. Um, what is the Dave Rosowski moment? When I first moved out, I moved out to California October 13, 2009, and I started level one at I.O. October 18, 2009. And I had Dave Hill, he was a great coach, but it was like level one, it's like, yes, and is this, and don't say this, and you know, hey, but he was still great, you know, he was awesome. Uh, what's really great is full circle, I got to come around and take him to level seven. So first class, last class, I got to take the same That's teacher, really cool. which was, and he's like, I think one of the best teachers there. He's so amazing. Uh, but two days after I started class, improv class, and I was just like, man, this is interesting. It's really cool. I kind of want to, I want to wait till next week. Like, oh, they have this dropping class for 20 bucks. So let me just, let me do it. And Dave Rosowski was the teacher of that drop-in class. And he blew my lid wide open when it came to improv and the freedom that you have on that stage. And, you know, what was so great is he wasn't teaching me like a level one student. He just treated me like a human. You know what I'm saying? In a lot of ways, like... 
it didn't matter what level of expertise you had in improv, what just mattered was improv. And the way he teaches is the way he teaches. It you can be level one, level seven, doing it for 10 years, and it's amazing. And it just catapulted me to this thing of like, I have to live, eat, and breathe live comedy, improv, and sketch. Because like, I stopped going to the movies, I stopped seeing shows, I stopped watching TV, improv became my everything. I started studying, practice groups, all that. Like, it probably took up a good 24 hours of my week. Wow. I was in like three practice groups on Sunday from like 12 to 8. I was doing uh, classes on Tuesdays, the drop-ins on Wednesdays and Fridays, and then another practice group I think on Saturdays or something. I was going so hard and into improv because it blew my mind. It was the most free, fun experience I've ever experienced. And I just died. I went from zero to a hundred just like that. And that day was out seeing class was a class that propelled me up there. And then what cool thing that happened with improv, like in level two at IO, Nate, my right partner now, that's where we met in level two. And the second week of class, our teacher, Bridget Kloss, asked us to stay after class. And she's like, I want you to try out for this team that performs every Friday night. And we're like, what? Okay, cool. Yeah, and, and we got to be on this team called Bobby Hot Stuff every Friday night from level two till the end of our, you know, schooling there. We got to perform every week on Friday night. That's so cool that she saw team. that in you. Yeah, that she saw it in us and was like, you guys, yeah, you guys should come do this. And yeah, she, I guess because we were just bold and we just, we didn't have fear up there and in his journey Nate's journey is so interesting too that he got to improv and acting and stuff like that um but then that just like propelled me just to be like yeah I gotta yeah let's go for it you know and there's just it's something that's so like I can't imagine what I would have done out here if not for improv and if I'm just waiting on you know paid acting work like what I I can't imagine what my life would have been like you know um but that said, like, kind of back to us more earlier, the reality of life, like, improv doesn't pay the bills. So I was working at Avalon, this nightclub, working 8 p.m. to 7 a.m. shifts. Oh, <laughs> like, the worst. Hearing nothing but hardcore techno music in the background. Just pulling my hair out, being like, I, what am I doing with my life? This you were a bartender? I, no, I was working the door. Like inside, no, I was like a ticket taker, even less than a door guy. You see your ticket, I take your ticket and just scan it, and then you go in. I scan it, you go in. But Nate got me the job there. The only thing that saved our life in that job, those late nights, we do improv games while we'd be uh, ticket takers. So he'd be across from me, like across the um, aisle from me, and then I'd be right there. And then we'd do any type of activities like tennis or fishing, and then he'd be the fish and get caught. Or we'd play basketball. We'd literally do space work and like work on improv, or we'd read books there, stuff like that. So it was a very interesting learning experience. Like an 11-hour shift of yeah. <laughs> doing of doing games. bits, yeah, yeah, in the game. So that was like the real, the saving grace of that. But then just to go back even further to my persistent, uh, my persistent um, personality, I wanted a job at this place called Mommy Burger. This was this new burger joint that was like really cool, but like I heard all this great stuff, like they pay really good, it's awesome. And I wanted a job, a specific one, do Mommy Burger on Sunset, because it just seemed like the best place I had with there. I was like, man, this would be great. And I called them every two weeks for eight months and finally got the job there and before i got the job there literally about two weeks before that i was contemplating on moving back to chicago just because the money was not like the money out here 
but then I was making an Avalon, I was even doing to send my son, any stuff, I was just like, I can't, I can't stay here if I can't, you know, if I can't figure something out, you know, because I got to do something, and then I got that job, and, like, I was possibly going to move in the month, that was what, that was what my thought, like, I might move back to Chicago. But that job really did it. That job saved my life out here. I love that you were calling that much. I call them every two weeks. And so I think a lot of people don't know that they're competing against that. They feel like you drop off your resume and then maybe yeah. drop it off again, and that's enough. Yeah, but it's like you gotta hit them like they, if he doesn't, and I had an alarm set on my phone every two weeks, it went off, and I was like, oh yeah, let me call Joey and see if he has it. And every week, like, no, not yet, not hiring yet. Nope, not hiring yet. No, not hiring yet. Call back in two weeks. No, not hiring yet. It's for real, you know? And David, she's like, Come in tomorrow. Just kind of like that bar job saved me. Like this umami burger job saved me. Um, and then I was like, it was like the money was so great. And this dude, Joy, was so awesome. As I'm sitting there and he's explaining to me like how the job's gonna be like, he's like, now number one, if you're out here to be a waiter, to do this, you can't work here. If you're not out here following some type of dream or something like that, then you can't work here. <laughs> So he's like, what are you out for? I was like, man, I'm an actor. I'm trying to do He's like, okay, well, great. Firstly, you have an audition. You have something like that. Let me know. We'll take care of it. We'll get it covered. That's important to me that you're going out and following your dream. So it was like, I'm coming into this job like, this is a dream job. What? The manager is cool. Our work breaks. So, hey, guys, break. Uh, we got a business meeting real quick. Let's get a real quick meeting. Shots. <laughs> yeah, get back out there and just kill it. It was such a fun work environment. It was so much fun that even after I booked, I think, eight commercials, I was still holding on to one shift there. Really? Because I love working there so much. And then I, once I got on a Herald team, and then we were having, we had to figure out rehearsal times. That's when I had to finally quit. And I was like, I can't even come in one day anymore because I'm stretched too thin. But it was and you didn't need to financially anymore. I didn't need it anymore. And that's such a that was such a great place. Like I, I worked there for a year and a half and for the first year I needed it. And then that last half, like my career just took off. It was like insane. So you and taking off was just booking a series of commercials? Well, yeah, I booked I booked two national like it, it was great. Like I just got a new agent in April. I booked this like little order commercial and like August, I was on Checkerville for a Fiat commercial in July, I didn't get it, I was heartbroken because I was like, oh my God, I could have got a commercial, what the hell is wrong with me, I'm stupid. <laughs> you know, I saw a Fiat the day of the commercial, I was like, it's destiny, it's <laughs> destiny because I just saw a Fiat, you know, and I did not get it and I was heartbroken, but then in August, I booked this little Orbit online commercial, I was like, oh, this is cool, but then in September, in the same week, I booked an Apple iPhone 4S commercial and a Subaru national spot. And then after that, McDonald's, Diet Coke, uh, Bud Light, TGI Friday. I mean, it was like insane how, and this is all in a span of like six months. I think I booked like 13 courses in a span of like six, seven months. Nobody's and ever been then, on a roll like that. Oh, dude, it was crazy. And then I booked my series right after that. You know what I'm saying? Really? Like right in the midst of booking those commercials. And where did getting on your Herald team fall? That happened. It, it was crazy how it all happened all around the same time. I booked those two commercials in September of 2011. I got on a Herald team in October of 2011. I got on a mod team in November or December 2011. Got my series in February 2012. So, and I had just gotten an agent in October. 
like after I got on the Herald, no, I got an agent in November. So after, no, December is when I got because after I got on the Herald team, I used that to like parlay trying to get an agent. So I got just an agent got and managers. Agent. Yeah, just got an agent and managers right before pilot season. How did started. that happen? Um, I went to this place called Network Casting, Network Studios, and it's like right by CBS. And I was just like, you know, I'm just gonna come and like pay the 200 bucks for the year, and I'm gonna do these um, agent workshops, you know, where the agent comes in, you do, so you perform for them, and they let you know what they think. And so, what's funny is like, I just happened, I, I went to Fern Ornstein's like career thing. She had this two week thing, it was like 150 bucks. I was like, I'm gonna do it. She works at CBS, I'm gonna fucking do it. I need to, I need to meet these people. And then she's just like, give it to you straight up. Like, you're this type of person, this is the type of actor you are. Look, Bring in, bring in who you think you should be acting with. Bring in what roles you should be in. No, this is what type of actor you are. You're not this sweetheart. Listen, you're not the detective. Trust me. You know, just really honest, blunt, and and but dope. You know, she's the one that runs the CBS Diversity Showcase too. So um, I went in there. And she's like, "Kid, you're gonna be fine. You're gonna be good. Look, you you gotta look. You good. You you're gonna be fine. You're gonna be doing some like stuff like this. You know." So it was like really like, "Oh, this is so awesome for her to say." You know. So then the second week of class was the last week of her. So then after that, I, they were having like a little workshop in the front, and I had already paid for two hundred, so I get to just go to the workshop. So I was like, "Oh, let me do this workshop real quick." And there was this agent there, Jason Hyman, and I did this dramatic Katrina monologue <laughs> that I used in Chicago. And I didn't know I was gonna do it that night, so it was kind of rusty and I kind of like fucked up a little bit. And then he was like, "Oh, man, you're like you're interesting, dude. You're very interesting." He's like, "What's this?" Like, "Oh, so like, oh, you're on the Herald team?" I was like, "Yeah, I just got on the Herald team. Hadn't even performed yet, but I just got on one." It's like, "Yeah, I just got on the Herald team. I just booked two national spots, you know." So I'm feeling it like I'm like, "Yeah, like I'm doing good, whatever." And he's like, "You know what? Yeah, now I'll give you a call tomorrow, you know." And then this is my agent now. This is Jason Hyman from Talent Works. So cool. Then that happened, and then he helped me get my manager, which was Odenkirk in December. And then in January came, and it was like pilot season upon us, and my first network audition was Ben and Kate. My first network <laughs> Your first one? was Ben and Kate. That yeah. like never happens. And it never happens. I, I went there that morning, auditioned for it at 10 o'clock. I had a call back that day at 5. Left there at 5. Had to come to my manager's office because I was auditioning for SNL. So I wanted to have them see my, my, my three characters that I was doing in the midst of all this, right? And then they're like, hey, they want to test you for Ben and Kate. And I was like, what's a test? Because I had no idea, you know? Um, and they're like, that means they like you and they want to do it. Um, and then so they're like, you know, they haven't even booked the leads yet. So this is, you know, we're probably going to wait a couple weeks. You're soon going out for stuff. So, you know, we'll see what happens. So I keep going out. And then my Super Bowl commercial came on February. And then this one pilot that I already auditioned for called me in the next day. Was like, because they, I came in the door, was like, we saw your Super Bowl commercial. It just made us think, God, we gotta get this guy back in here. You know, I'm like, what? That's crazy. And then they're like, we wanna test him too. And then Fox was like, oh, no, 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 not before we get the testing. So then they rushed the test, <laughs> hurry up and test me, and then booked me for it. And it was just like, holy crap, you know what I'm saying? And then. I love that series. And it got picked up and they flew me out to New York and got to experience like the upfronts, which is just, that was my first time ever going to New York. It was such a surreal experience of being with like all these super famous people and just being like, holy crap, this is insanity. I'm living my dream. Like this is crazy, you know? And it was such a great, amazing show. And Dana Fox was so brilliant, you know, and just warm and welcoming and I think one of the things that always scared me about the industry was just the stereotype that you know it's like rough and people are mean and directors make people cry and people do all this stuff and actresses are like my chair you know and all this like that but 
I think the one thing Ben and Kate taught me was that that is bullshit because there's a lot of good people working in this industry who are honest, great, down earth people like Nat and like like um, Lucy and Dana and all. I mean, they're all Jake. Everybody was just so great on that show, and it just it just made me so happy to be like a part of it, you know. And when it got canceled, I was it was like a big bummer. Obviously, it's my first time ever having an experience like that, and we were hurt, but it just coming back to that thing of really experiencing loss and pain and so there's thing like you know what but it's all good that was so amazing like who cares i got money in my pocket i did great i loved it the experience will always be with me and that was cool you know did you feel completely ready to meet that challenge when it like came to you there was excitement and you know trepidation too you know what i mean it's scary to be like oh man now what because i think one thing actors always worry about too especially if you have any successes that it's just lightning in a bottle that you got lucky that you just happen to be in the right place at the right time like can you do it again can you strike lightning twice and all that stuff like that and i think it took me a while just to get out of that mindset like i think because like ben and k got canceled and then i was just offered a pilot so i got to just be in a pilot but just off of that and then i got to even keep auditioning and then like i went in the red for sean saves the world and then afterwards like, I went to Subway, just like, I'm gonna go eat, and Sean Hayes called my cell phone. He had been in the room for your audition? He was in the room for audition. He was not reading with me, but just, you know, producing on it. And he called me personally on my cell phone and was like, I want you to be in the show. Let's make it happen. Let's figure it out. You know what I'm saying? So I was like, whoa, holy crap. You know, like, and that must feel great. Cause oh, man. You, were you feeling like a little bit down from Ben and Kate being canceled definitely. at that time? Yeah, I was in the dumps. You know what I mean? Like, I wasn't beating myself up over about it. It was definitely like, oh, man, it was such a great show. I wish we could have got a chance to really, really figure it all out, you know? Um, but it definitely was like, oh, my God, this is this is amazing. Like, it's not a fluke. Yes. You know what I'm saying? That kind of feeling of like, yeah. And then, like I said, I, I just booked that other pilot that they offered me, like 20th Century Fox. I'm like, oh, Echo would be great for this role. Unfortunately, it was somebody got fired at their table read, and I always hate that, that I just have to lose their jobs like that and stuff like that, but they were like, just put that going, it was like, great. Um, so it was like, I had that as a backup, and I had this other pilot, so I was like, I got to do two pilots, you know, and one year, it was like, holy crap, this is insane. And then Sean happened, and like, I was like, why not? You know, I was a big fan of Will and Grace, I'd never done Monty Cam, and I was like, yeah, fuck it, let's go for it. You know, I already loved the cast, I was with it then that show was great. You know, it was just so much fun to learn from him and Thomas and, and, and even Linda and, and Megan and even Sammy to an extent, like just to learn so much about acting and how their professionalism really, you know, translates. And like, I felt like fortunate that I got to really take in a lot of that, you know, and even like from Ben and Kate, I felt very fortunate to learn from all those people professionalism too. Um, and it was just like so beneficial and then that got canceled and then it was like oh <laughs> dang it you know but it's like yeah, it happens and you know what mostly it happens mostly too you know it's not just some you know out of the blue thing most network shows get canceled you know sadly uh, but then like that pilot season I think that's when I realized like I'm here to stay I'm not gonna worry about it every year might not be the best year but I'm confident in my ability as an actor and as myself that I'll be okay you know what I'm saying and then last year it's like I went out and like had like three or four offers for different things and like had to earn them like I didn't just no one said hey put them in this I had to audition for it and win over the crowd and whatever and I felt super confident in my abilities like yeah I'm gonna be okay I'm gonna make it happen you know whatever it is you know it's just gonna be a matter of time before 
I hopefully break through in some way. So that I think last year was just when I was like, I'm not gonna worry. Cause it's like, that's why I like bought this house and stuff like that. I was like, you know what? This is who I am. I'm an actor. I, I grind out, I work hard, I go for it and I'm not gonna sweat it. You know, am I gonna be the next Will Smith? Who knows? Is that important to me? No, what is important to me is just to stay in a life as an actor, being able to pay my bills, being able to eat whatever I want, to be in a safe neighborhood with my family. But it's a cool moment to kind of go, this isn't completely fluky. Yeah, it is, yeah. It I is. think we're going to keep this up. Yeah, I think this is going to keep going. Yeah, yeah. And like, I mean, and there's been so many other opportunities that have presented itself since then. So it's like, I'm like, yeah, I'm here. I'm here. I get it. I'm not a big star. I'm not even a medium star. I'm not I would even say, a I'd star. say you're a medium star. I would say little. I would say very minuscule, like <laughs> D-list, E-list. I don't no. know. Absolutely. If if I'm even on any list at that, you know, I would say I'm on the industry's list. But, you know, as far as people in real world, no. But even still, like, I, you know, I have to work hard for everything. You know, like, it's like if I want a project I really want, I have to go out and try to bust my ass to try to get it. And it's still not guaranteed to me, you know, so. Do you get recognized when you're out and about now? You know, I don't wear my glasses as much anymore just because I kind of wanted to cut back on that a little bit. Not like it was ever crazy, but just like. You know, there is a part of me like that when Sean got canceled, I was just like, you know, I kind of just want to move and just move in a little different direction. You know what I'm saying? I'm just like, I just kind of need a break from, like I stopped tweeting as much. I just kind of like, just like, well, I need a break. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So like, I just started going out without glasses and my left eye hates me for it, but because <laughs> I got nerve damage in it, but I'm just like, it's just easier. It's just chill. But every once, every once in a while, still people are like, hey man, you're a dude from whatever. You know what I'm saying? So it's like. I, people definitely look at me as like I know him from somewhere yeah. a lot, but you know they're trying to figure like, it out. Yeah, they're like, did he rob me? <laughs> or was he on America's Most Wanted? <laughs> they're always negative things. They think, oh, did he get my daughter pregnant three years ago? Is that the guy? Um, <laughs> I did, uh, <laughs> but it's really chill. It's in a, it's a great place for me because it's like I get to make money. And I don't get to have all the pressures of paparazzi and stuff following me. Like, I mean, yes, TMZ's like hit me up twice in the past, but like, I generally can still have an amenity, which is like really cool. This feels like kind of a sweet zone. Yeah, yeah, it's a pretty sweet zone. Yeah, too much more, and it'll get a little crazy, you know. But just right now, like, as long as I can keep working and you know, just getting jobs here and there, and just you know, going forward, it's a sweet zone. But even though I feel like, you know, I do want that movie, and I really want to be like that actor who's just, you know, in good, cool stuff, you know, yeah. and that will bring more infamy in some ways, but, um, it's, you know, it's, it's like I'm living my dream. I get to do what I want. It's like, I love, you know, to be in this industry in this field and creatively and it's like, and I'm doing stuff that's like more than acting, you know, like I'm writing a lot more and like trying to sell TV show. Like I just sold a show to Comedy Central and I'm just Yeah. What's to- your writing life like? Uh, How did you, when did you start writing? And- I started writing, I think, seriously, maybe two and a half years ago. Uh, my writing partner and I, Nate, we wrote a script about uh, the post-apocalyptic uh, world. But it was a post-apocalyptic world where zombies were just another minority. They were all cognitive and not all monsters. Sure, you had some zombies who were monsters, but just like you have people who were monsters. People who were serial killers and stuff like that. But they're just another minority group in the post-apocalyptic world. That's really so it's fun. a comedy about 
one friend who just got turned into a zombie just trying to have to deal with love, sex, and friendship. You know what I'm saying? And post-zombie apocalypse. You know, so um, <laughs> it was a fun, fun ride. We, we went out to New York because we went to set in New York. We went out to New York and rode it, you know, like doing like two DCMs ago. We went out there for like a month and just rode every day and like going to the parks and just really trying to get a real good feel for the city. And then we came back out here and like polished it and stuff like that. But it was such a fun experience. And, you know, we got to actually go out and take it and pitch it. And we did great in every pitch meeting and we like did pitch and drop and it didn't sell. And I get that, you know, it's a pretty ambitious project, you know, but it, it really did give us some cred in, in their viewpoints and it got us lit agents and all that stuff like that. And, you know, like, and we just have like our, our lit agent just does lit. So it's like, it's not about me being an actor or anything. It's just strictly about us writing. And so we do get opportunities that come up, but the problem is sometimes acting interferes with writing opportunities. So it's like, gotta have that perfect thing where we're trying to sell a show, but we also get like some staffing opportunities because of our zombie script. Like we, uh, Gallivant producers approached us to like talk, you know, because of our zombie script and stuff like that. But because of acting stuff and like I was negotiating this overall deal with NBC and all stuff like that, it just kind of, yeah. we had to make a move or, you know, it's like, ah. Uh, and you feel like acting is your number one dream? Yeah, uh, it is. I, but my dreams have shifted a little. Like I love acting, but I want to create. You know, I really do want to create and hell, I act in it too, you know, but I, I do like, I've, I've always been a person my entire life. I've always just had good, interesting ideas, just unique ideas about things. You know what I'm saying? So like, I would always feel like I'd be great in a pitch session. You want to pitch? Let's pitch and let's go for it. Because I'm like, ideas that, like, I'm, I think ideas, like, let's think of this, new thing, this new thing. Um, and then I'm just trying to find that writing component of like, oh, can I actually flush out characters and make more of this idea as opposed to just make an idea, can I really make it into a full-fledged story, you know? Um, and that's where I feel like having a partner help me get there uh, in a lot of ways because we really got to bounce off each other a lot. Um, but that's why I really want to create and do stuff like that because I feel like I have a very interesting, unique perspective that I feel like once an executive feels like, yeah, let's go for it, that like it could be pretty interesting and maybe be something that the, the masses might be into too. You know, and then like the, on top of the fact that a lot of shows that come out, I'm like, wow, we had that idea written. Like, look, read, read, the, read the law like that. That's our idea that we wrote two years ago. That we didn't sell. So you, you, you're yeah. in the right ballpark. Right ballpark. And that's happened probably, I would say, honestly, like not just cool, but like this is almost verbatim what we said. Yeah. Three or four times. Oh, last man. Year, last two years. Rather, yeah. Can you talk about what you sold to Comedy Central or without? <laughs> yeah, well, it's, it's, uh, we sold the pitch. Um, it's called Overanalyzers and uh, it's written by an amazing writer, Brian Schachter. I'm on as a producer, possibly to star in, um, but we're still negotiating all that stuff right now. Um, and it's just a great, great comedy. First of all, he's a phenomenal writer. Um, and he like did a little work on 22 Jump Street, he's not credited or anything like that, but you know, he's, he's a really good writer. Uh, and it's about this young group of friends kind of dealing with their relationships and you know, their friendships, but it's really about how they overanalyze every single aspect of their life, whether it be dating, work, or whatnot, and how meticulous they are with it, and how technology makes it 
doubly, triply worse than our parents or anybody ever had to deal with. Yeah. Um, and so it really breaks down the structure of how obsessed we are with overanalyzing everything. Uh, so it's a really interesting thing. It's like friends, but just like let loose kind of in, in its own world and just like a little bit edgier. And the way the stories work, it's really interesting because like you, there's like an event that happens and then everyone analyzes to see what exactly it all meant or whatnot. So you might see a lot of different perspectives on how said event came and affected it. And then you see what really happened and you realize, oh my God, y'all was tripping or something like that, you know? But it's just the way he, he really puts down the pins and the paper is just like, he's so smart and funny and unique. And it's like, I mean, that's why I picked it up. Cause like dudes are genius. And, and even though they didn't have a script, like just, we pitched the story is just like very interesting. It's just different, you know, because we're not approaching it from a winking eye. It's so I tweeted the Twizzers, haha. <laughs> you know, it's like, ugh, gross. I hate like when they just like let's make it fun of 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 technology. We're like really breathing and living in that real thing that it is to like be single nowadays. What is Tinder like? Like it's like really getting into the nuts and bolts of that, and it's like a really really good show, in my opinion. Do you feel like? You can be over analytical and and like replay moments too much. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, I do feel like I I am able to let things go, um, in some real tangible ways just because of the experiences that I have had. So obviously, the moments you tend to overanalyze or replay a moment, you fuck up in it, you know. So. <laughs> That definitely comes into play sometimes, but then I'm just like, you know what, I gotta let it go. It's not like I could change anything, and you know, it is what it is, and will it affect that? Who knows, you know? So sometimes you just gotta stop spinning the wheels and just <laughs> try to relax. But I think we all get caught up in a trap of definitely overanalyzing it, and that's what I think people will be able to really relate to and just us really hitting that message like hard. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So your improv team, Winslow, just yeah. got made into a house team. At yeah. UCB. What are your like current things that you're challenging yourself to get better at in improv or ways that you want to yeah I mean I think for me it's always for me it's always about just good two-person scene work and just trying to an analogy I love and I'll credit RC Phil on this and that is how do you increase your percentages of having successful scenes right because you're not always going to have successful scenes. It's just like a batting average. It's a batting average, exactly. And that's the, that's the uh, analogy he uses is baseball. Like, how do you bat 7-10 in your scenes as opposed to 3-11? You know what I'm saying? Like, how do you make sure you got 7 good scenes out of 10 or 9 good scenes out of 10? Like, what can you do to really bone up on that? And I think, for me, improv now, for me, really ties into my acting classes that I'm taking with Anthony Mendel, which is just really about really opening up and listening because all acting is really is through that listening and just seeing where your emotions tell you because like i've never been a person who's like oh i have to play a game i have to play this like that and i'm just like i'm gonna play whatever i feel out there or how it feels like i'm gonna i'm not gonna tie myself into this is specifically how because it's with improv it is always changing two people can perform the entirely almost exact verbatim scene and you would still have different notes for what they should do with it and improv is always changing and we never know what's right or wrong because we don't know until that moment happens and that's the beauty of improv so i just try to live freely in the moment but i definitely try to bone in and make sure i'm just connecting with my partner and really giving them as much as i can and making like i love the acting 
aspect of improv. So I'm always trying to challenge myself to be a better actor and try to not break as much, even though it's so hard to not break when you play with Winslow or a team like that. But it's definitely about really giving into that craft because studying at like Grounds and I.O. and UCB has kind of got me to form my own kind of unique perspective on how improv should go. Because I feel like sometimes character, and Besser, you know, preaches a lot about character work and bringing that more into UCB's wheelhouse. Like, I feel like sometimes that's really necessary. And I feel like naturally I probably lean toward more character work because that's what I've been doing since I was a kid. Like, since watching A Living Color and stuff like that, I've just always loved playing characters and then even my my biggest work i've gotten has been characters like tommy was a character sean i mean uh uh hunter on sean saves the world was a character you know like so it's characters are my strong suit but it is like about challenging yourself to hone in on more things so there were phases where i was like i really gotta get game i really want to just i'm gonna play strictly game right now and just try to do these things so so that i know i have that in my wheelhouse but it's just think about having a diverse a diverse um, array of tools that you really approach to improv. And right now I'm just honed in on just being there for my part in the best way I can, especially with Winslow and just trying to have fun, good scene work, you know? And you're still taking classes at Groundlings? Yeah, well, I'm waiting on advanced study. I finished writing lab in June of 13. Um, so, or June, of, yeah, June of 13, so my advanced study should be coming up. But what's the, the what's the point of taking, like, more classes at Groundlings? It feels like you're ahead of that. I'm, I'm a fan of the art and stuff. I, I think... When I got on Ben and Kate, I'll tell you a story first. The, one of the producers told me at the upfronts when we got picked up, you're gonna have time for the improv and sketch. Like, you're gonna have to quit that stuff. You're not gonna do that stuff. And my brain, I was like, yeah, right. You know, yeah, we'll see. You know what I'm saying? But it's like, for me, it's like resting on your laurels, feeling like you've accomplished this thing, you have to do this. Like, because I've seen, you know, some UCB performers, you know, get on things and they're like, they're gone. For me, it's like, if I have the time, if I'm able, then I wanna do it because this is what I love. You know what I'm saying? So for me, it's like, if I can still take classes, if I still have that ability to learn more and take in more, it's just going to make me better. It's going to make me sharpen my tools better. You know what I'm saying? So for me, classes are absolutely worth it. Will I take advanced study? If I have an opportunity, absolutely. Because it's going to be a super hard challenge that I'm ready to push myself to. That writing lab class is probably the best class I've ever taken in my life. It pushed me. The first day of class, I was like, I can't do this. I gotta quit this class. Uh, what? Right? How much? You crazy? You know what I'm saying? Because this is me, like, yeah. not really writer brain yet, yet, yet. I'm trying to get there. Wanting to push myself and being like, yo, I mean, y'all got that mind. They're gonna be doing all this work. What? And then having stuck through that and came through that and the fire and like trying and failing was like the best experience I've ever had. And then being able to go on to the next level, I was like, oh my God, I have to do it. So, like, if I get Sunday Company, I'll do it. It will be fucking tough. I might not be able to do it if I'm on a TV show or something like that just because of the time restraints, but like I would love to continue to progress. Like hell, I'd love to become a ground one day, to be honest. And like do those main stage shows. Like I, I love that theater too, you know. Obviously UCB is my heart, it's my home, like it'll always be number one to me. But you know, I, I've always been, you know, I talk about video games when I was a kid. I had the Sega Genesis and the Super Nintendo, okay? I had the Torograph 16 as well. I had the Nintendo, Sega, you know, like, I am the type of person, like, I need it all. Yeah. So then I can formulate my own thing. You know what I'm saying? And that's how I really approach it. So, like, UCB is Nintendo and... Yeah, yeah, and Growl is a Sega Genesis, and 
you know, I.O. was my Topographic 16, you know, so it's like, I like them all though. Sometimes I want to play that Topographic 16, I want to put in Kid Icarus, you know, sometimes I want to crack on Sonic the Hedgehog, and sometimes I want to rock Super Mario Brothers, you know, so it's like, that's how it is for me, it's like, all these different perspectives help me form a unique, different one, but like, obviously, UCB has been there for me more than any theater or organization probably has ever, you know, like, from having a diversity scholarship to take all my classes to being like on the boards of diversity committee and the Thomas Inca Foundation to hopefully go into teaching now if I can just get in my house and figure this out because I definitely want to I want to get back you know what I'm saying and it's obviously teaching isn't about the money to me like who cares about that stuff but I just want to be able to get back and try to give my perspective and maybe get a kid to get as excited as I did about improv and doing it you know and I think that's a place where you just you're comfortable and confident in yourself because I think a lot of times with black guys and people in general black, you know, we speak on black guys from just my experience is that we get very competitive. I mean, women say this a lot with women too, but we get very competitive. And it's like, oh, more black guys are performable. Well, that makes out that makes I won't get jobs. And I'm like, no, I'm confident in my abilities. Like, and then at the same time, I don't want to be called because I'm just the black guy. I want to be called because I'm Echo Kello. Mm-hmm. Not the black guy, the white guy, but the person who you want his skills because you know he's good in this thing. You know what I'm saying? Like, um, I, that's why like I champion and happy for like white women and Londale and Marshall and stuff like like I happy when we all fucking work because we all can work. We can break the stigmatism that there's only certain work for us. Like, no fuck that. You know the academy is wrong. There should be more diversity here, and we just have to keep fighting back at that to make sure it happens and not cut each other out at the knees in the process. You know what I'm saying? So for me, it's just about committing, believing in yourself and helping others. You know what I'm saying? I feel like you've got a rarely good attitude. <laughs> just overall. Well, I mean, you deal with you deal with strife and you deal with just feeling blessed. Like, you know, like I could be dead today. Like, I have literally survived drive-bys. You know what I'm saying? A bullet could have went through me. You know, that robber could have pulled his gun on me when he took my iPad. It's just having a perspective of, like, life is good, yo. Like, no matter what. Even if you... Even if, you know, it seems like it's so bad. You still have it. It's all good. You can always fix it. You know, Confucius, this quote, I love this quote. The best time to have built a tree is 20, oh, I'm sorry, the best time to have planted a tree is 25 years ago. The second best time is today, right? You're gonna, you're gonna complain about what you haven't been doing for 25 years, or are you gonna decide today, I'm gonna change and make a difference? That's really what it's about, like taking each day, living in the now, and just going for it. Like, you wanna be a guitar rock guy? I keep saying that because the guitars are obviously behind you. <laughs> then start today. You know what I'm saying? Because time will pass and then eight years from now, you're like, holy crap, I remember eight years ago I said I was going to become a guitar rock guy. And look at me. I'm opening for Motley Crue. You know? <laughs> Whatever it is. <laughs> Do you tend towards believing in God? I'm definitely, I definitely believe in God. Um, I grew up very religious, not a fan of religion right now. I don't think I ever will be again. Um, just because I'm a, I'm a big fan of science too. Um, but I think there's room for God in science. I feel like there could have been an architect who moves some type of materials around the universe to force a big bang theory to happen. Like, you know, we're made in God's image. Why can't God be a scientist? You know what I'm saying? 
And if not, then everything just happens by chance or whatever, and that's all good too. You know what I'm saying? But I feel like faith helps me uh, get through life and troubles. And I also just feel like I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for some type of higher being helping. Like, just like it's a movie that I like to say is so indicative of Hollywood that just disgusts me is Van Helsing. Uh-huh. Because in Van, and this is why it disgusts me, because in Van Helsing, there's always a big climactic point where it's over, the hero's gonna die, and all of a sudden he's saved! And it happens like 10 times in the movie. I can deal with it happening once at the end where you think Indy's gonna fall and then he wound up saving himself. He's like, yay! And Van Helsing, they were so liberal with that fucking thing, that plot of, now Freddy's son happens to grab her before she gets chopped up! Now Van Helsing happens to move one inch before the bullet goes! It's just like, oh my fucking god, stop with this shit. He just makes it at the last second. Every time, every time in the last second you save it. But that is my life. As much as I hate that on Ben Helsing, how movies go, I always feel like when I'm at my lowest and it's like the last second, there's always been something. Whether it's the jobs that I have or the friends that be there for me, there's always been something that just pulls me out of it, that helps me right before, you know, it's, right before, it's always darkest right before dawn. And that's how I always felt like it's been always darkest, but like what else is that? Is it just luck? Is it just the coincidence of the universe? Or is there some being out there happening to be looking out for me? I am definitely aware that God might not exist, but I choose to believe that he does. Yeah. You know, and that he's awesome, that he created us, and that, you know, that is what it is. Because it's hard to believe that it's been just a coincidence over and over again. It's not. I mean, well, it is hard. Yeah. In my life, yes, it is hard to believe that it's just been these coincidence after coincidence after coincidence. Like, I'm like, what is it all about? You know? But... I can understand someone's perspective being like, but what about all the hard stuff that happened in your life? Well, just go, where's God there? You know, and I'm like, yeah, that's a good point. You know, but life is, you know, rife with all those types of things. Um, But I did grow up in the church and I'm still prayerful. And I just, you know, I was having a conversation with my brother the other day. He's like a Jehovah's Witness, like still very, very devout. And the morals that most Christians or religious people have. If you took away every religious element from it, that's how everyone should treat each other. Love your neighbor, don't sleep with his wife, don't kill people, don't... Like, these are all pretty good human tenets that we could all learn from. And if people want to worship a being that helps them be better people like that, I'm all for it. Of course, when people twist religion and then try to shame people and twist it for war or bad purposes, I'm obviously against that. But, you know, people are people and they're going to twist everything and make shit bad and be money hungry and power hungry and all those other things. But generally, I feel like the majority of the people, Muslim people, everybody are peaceful, law abiding, trying to get closer to their God people. And their gods usually pretty much preach peace and love overall that's the if you look at the one and i studied the bible a lot as a kid but if you look at the one overriding theme of the bible it's love like i don't believe in hell like the way i was raised religious wise like we don't believe in hell because you're like how could god's number one tenet be love but he gonna torture you forever in fire <laughs> right that that means love right no no it doesn't no 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 you know what I'm saying? That's not what love is. But the love part feels good. The love part feels good. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, where do you hope you are 
five years from now? You can be. Uh, man, in five years from now, I hope I'm definitely, I hope to have multiple shows in the air that I'm producing or that I've written. I hope to have uh, been the lead of some cool, awesome movie. You want to do superhero movies? Yeah, I totally love doing superhero movies. I would love that. Heck yeah. That's why I kind of want to get jacked more. Rotator Cuff has like, been a pain. But that's like a, a hope of yours is to like get in like really awesome shape. You yeah. already are in great shape. Yeah, like, I mean I take good care of myself, but like, yeah, like I, I, you know, it's in my bones that like I'm gonna get, you know, I'm gonna put on more muscle and just get to that place where I can like do those scenes and be that superhero type of. Do guy. you have a particular superhero you'd especially like to be? Man, oh man, Spider Man. Yeah, yeah, that'd be really yeah. good. I love me Spider-Man. That'd be dope. And they need a new one, like, <laughs> after Andrew Garfield, right? Oh, man. They might as well go for Black Spider-Man. Why not, you know? There was like, that great new money sketch where you were Spider-Man. Uh, Spider-Man. I was Spider-Man. That, no, that, that might have been a foreshadowing. Wouldn't that be cool? <laughs> wouldn't that be great if we get to go check that out? Yeah, I love me Spider-Man. Or even, like, a, a Black Gambit. <laughs> Blambit. <laughs> Blam it, you know. But <laughs> I think I think we just made it happen. That's a, that's a movie I want to see. <laughs> you like Gambit. You also like black people. <laughs> so yeah. you want to have multiple shows on the air that you're producing? Yeah. Uh, movies. Maybe starring in one. I don't know. Like you know, honestly, like if I could think, like I'd love to be in our fourth season of Overanalyzers as a producer. I'd love to be. In my third season of my network television show, I'd love to have just shot my movie and wherever over the summer that's coming out, you know, and just to still be performing improv and doing sketch and like still like building out. Cause like for me, it's like, even like if I got on something like SNL, my hope is like, I'll be back guys. I'm gonna be out a couple shows, you know what I'm saying? But like, I'm not trying to leave the team, you know what I'm saying? Like, I'm not like, Alright y'all, well, I'm on SNL, bye, forever, <laughs> not the that's not, obviously not, not anybody, but just for me, like, even if I had to go to New York for a couple months, I'd be like, I don't know what's going to happen. You can't put faith into being a private contractor, because yeah. you don't know where the next work is, you know what I'm saying? But what I do know is I love performing live theater, I love it a lot, it's super tough, it's challenging, but it's also very rewarding, and it's like, that's what I want to do. And... I also love you on Rick and Morty. That's oh, <laughs> the voice. Dude, is that was such a dream come true for me because, like, I loved their show, Acceptable TV, on VH1 years ago. They had a show, and I was a huge, huge super fan of this show. Justin Roiland and Dan Harmon. I was really good. Really, I mean, like, I was probably the only person that watched it because they were <laughs> not there for the first season. And then to come full circle and get to be in their awesome, super cool animated show. That's like, it was a dream come true. It was like, wow, I can't believe I get to say I'm a part of Rick and Morty. Yeah. Like, because it's like a cartoon that if I had no connection to it, I would absolutely love. And I'm like, wow, I get to be like, that's my voice. And it's surreal, it's crazy. It would be fun to get to show like, Echo working at Blockbuster. Yeah. All these things. That man, he would be so proud and happy. <laughs> and you know what's so funny is like, Everyone is just like so happy for me. Like, my mom, like, she's just like, she just saw my house pictures for the first day, and she's like, I can't, I'm so happy for you. She's like, I'm <laughs> yeah. so proud of you and happy that you're just like doing it. And I think it's just like a thing of like hard work. Like, it may not happen in one year or two years, 
may happen in 10, 12, 13 years. But if you come out here, you have a good work ethic, you're good to people, you can work out here. And you can make a living for yourself. Like I said, not everyone's going to be Will Smith. But you can be a working actor in this town. Or a working creator or a working artist in this town if you got drive and if you're ready to go for it. That's awesome. Yeah. Thank you so much for doing this. Hey, man. Thanks for having uh, me. Yeah. Go new money. Go new money. New monies. So there you have it, my interview with the maybe future Spider-Man, Echo Kellum. If you want to see Echo perform live, you can see him performing with our team New Money the second Wednesday of every month at UCB Sunset. You can also see him acting not live by renting the DVD for the first seasons of Ben and Kate and Sean Saves the World. Again, if you're a fan of the show, it would be amazing if you would rate and subscribe to us. And if you have a suggestion for something you'd like to see happen on the show, you can email me at onthecusppod at gmail.com. Special thanks to Casey Trela and Hi-Ho Silvero for all the music in this episode, to my sound editor Joe Burge, and to my producer Cece Pierce. This has been On the Cusp! That's your outro music.